Awesome. That was loud and clear. Okay. But loud and clear. That's what we're looking for. All right. So we can yep. start. Jason, thank you so much for, for joining us. This is fantastic. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, it has, it's been a fun project up until this point, and um, I'm glad to be able to talk to you guys. Good. Well, yeah, I'll, our, I'll kick it off to Brian. I'll kick it off to Brian about our project. I'm so glad that we get a chance to, to talk now. I mean, I just know you really from your fantastic remix of uh, the song, which we'll play and talk about later. Yeah, so I I found you, Jason, on Twitter, actually, uh, which was, of all the technologies that are out there, I wasn't expecting to find such a cool person on, on Twitter to help us with this project. <laughs> I don't uh, spend a lot of time on Twitter these days, so I'm pretty amazed you found me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some strategic searching did it, right? But yeah. put out a call for, for people to, to, to work with us on this project, and then I started strategically searching, and I, I managed to find your page, and you recorded this really awesome um, track uh, refugee bounce is what you called it which i just i love the, that name it's it's so like um, so like cool hip trendy in addition to the subject that we're we're studying for this particular podcast so i guess our first question then is can you tell us a little bit about your interest in in vietnamese music how you came to to decide to study this subject for your doctorate at indiana university i of course i grew up in in a vietnamese american family I, I was born in North Carolina, uh, in Winston-Salem. So that's the home Wake Forest. That's where I went to undergrad. But there's not a lot of Vietnamese people there. There were always enough of us to have fit, uh, New Year festivals, though. So my mom has always loved singing. And she's not a professional singer, but she was always good enough of a singer that she was always a singer at the fit festival every every year and i always remember that experience but so the music was always around us uh, musicians in the band became uh, pretty good family friends when i started to play violin so i started to learn how to play violin right on first grade or so and the band would then a few years after that as after i i start, stopped sounding like a cat dying you know because like every violinist <laughs> goes through that phase uh, the band uh, leader uh, asked uh, my sister and i to to come and play it uh, and and we so we would play uh, one of those years I played Matbiak, and uh, I think we will probably know these songs, but Matbiak, uh, so like really classic, you know, old songs. And I remember playing those songs on violin, but always thinking that because I came from classical music and the kind of complexities of the notated music from a classical perspective is very different, right? If you look at the sheet music of a, of a Vietnamese pop song from the 50s and 60s, which is like what those basically were, they're very simple songs, just like any kind of American pop song would be. The melody is simple, and then and then you have the chords written, basically, you know, like a like a guitar lead sheet. And so you're sitting here as a violinist playing just this melody. Uh, I remember at the time thinking that Vietnamese music was very simple. Through my research and and through my life experience, I've discovered I was very wrong. But I remember as a kid thinking that, or at least that that Westernized uh, Vietnamese music, the, the, the popular music. Uh, was very simple. When I got to uh, college, I, I was lucky enough to uh, be at Wake Forest on a scholarship that gave me the opportunity to do summer research. Starting from after my freshman year, I went to study Danbo, the, the Vietnamese monochord, uh, with uh, a master living in Canada, Phạm Đức Thành. And part of the reason for that was a desire to look deeper into the Vietnamese music repertoire 
And I think a, I don't know if it was subconscious, but it's definitely kind of a undercurrent sense that Vietnamese music was more sophisticated than I was believing at the time, right? And trying to figure out what that was. In those days, everyone watched Paris by Night, or if you weren't watching it yourself, your parents were watching it, and it was around the background. So I remember seeing my master play. He's, he's the principal Dunbow player for Paris by Night, even today. So... Um, I, I remember being struck by the instrument because, uh, you know, when when you're growing up Vietnamese American, I think you're kind of inundated by particularly, um, at least when you're growing up Vietnamese American in the '80s. So maybe very specific, right? I think you're inundated um, by uh, particularly uh, Chinese culture, specifically like Hong Kong films and. Uh, TV serial culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so like, so those sorts, those sorts of sounds, uh, those sorts of instruments were around me all the time. I knew what I knew what they were at least vaguely, right? And the thing about most Vietnamese instruments is that they come from the same kind of background. So Dan Cheng, the Vietnamese zither, looks a whole lot like and comes from the same kind of origins as the guzheng, uh, the dan ga, the Vietnamese fiddle, uh, comes from the same kind of origins mm-hmm. as uh, the arhu, right? So thinking- like all these instruments, all these instruments, you, you think about like, oh, well, you know, I mean, they, they like even like the Vietnamese tiba, uh, the word comes from pipa, you know, the, the Chinese lute, right? So all of these things, at the time, you're looking for, or at least I was looking for myself, a, a, a direction to be Vietnamese. I've been inundated with, with this, this Chinese culture, uh, cultural production all the entire time. And I think the Danbo struck me as an instrument that was very uniquely Vietnamese. It was a discourse that I somehow absorbed mm-hmm. uh, in, in, you know, in, in the intervening time. And so as a, a impressionable teenage uh, college student, I was like, I, I, this is the instrument I want to learn. This is the one that represents to me how I could figure out my Vietnamese-ness. For, um, uh, for people who aren't really familiar, I was wondering if I could play this for you, uh, to, if you could talk a little bit about what Danbao music is. Can you hear that? Mm-hmm. While we listen to the first few chords of this, could you describe to people who aren't familiar what this, what it means? So, this is actually uh, my teacher's album. Um, can you hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. So tell us a little bit. So, uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So the the dunbo, uh, as a traditional instrument, has a very murky history. Uh, people aren't exactly sure where it came from, but. Uh, at least by the, I would say early 1800s, it was known as being an instrument of uh, kind of the wandering um, musicians, the poor beggar musicians, uh, particularly in North Vietnam. Um, the the song being played right now is actually a um, a song from Quan Hot Bắc Ninh. So, so the folk songs of a Bakning village in North Vietnam, um, which I think Danbo players gravitate to northern songs because they, at least early on, a lot of the best Danbo players were from the north because that's where the instrument came from, um, at least as far as anyone can tell, right? Uh, later on, 
so the dunbo um is a is a one string instrument um played in a very unique way uh because uh you pluck instead of plucking the string and just letting the string ring uh you know like you would for a guitar you um you place your hand on the harmonic and basically force the string into a higher register and that's why that's why it has a very clear sound that it has so the, the higher register is called the harmonic of the string right and in, in physics you have different harmonics above the string so so the the i've the i've always been kind of uh, fascinated by the sophistication of the playing technique of a dunbo um but in any case in terms of the the music itself a dunbo music tended to be associated uh with the beggar music uh of north vietnam for a long time so um that's uh, so, um i'm trying to think of um specific uh genres but like uh so so outside of beggar music you would also have like um Atel, Northern Vietnamese opera. Uh, my teacher came from that background, uh, for example. Uh, and then come, say, the 1920s and 30s, the instrument gets better known uh, in, in central Vietnam, particularly in the royal city of Hue, and then gets incorporated into the royal music a little bit, at least by the musicians. Because like the, basically, uh, the, then the um, best quote-unquote traditional musicians of Vietnam are then located in um, in Hue, right? So then they start to play with the Danbo and use it. And the, the shape of the instrument changes a little bit. Uh, the way it's played changes a little bit. And they start getting incorporated into the music of the South uh, through, I'd say, the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, Ironically, oh. this is the same time. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I just, uh, I was just thinking this kind of circles back to what you were talking about earlier about Vietnamese pop music sort of incorporating some of that yeah. sound. Is that right? Um, I think I have yeah. a sample here. Um, maybe we can take a listen and you give us some, some, uh, uh, commentary on what you think about it. Rock and Roll Soul, tracks from 1968-1974 remastered. What do you think, Jason? Hard not to sing along. <laughs> What's she well, saying? I, 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 I love this song. So. It's so awesome. No All right. So what 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 is this about? Tell us about this song. About this music. So, yes. Yeah, so so this is a rock music, like like kind of slightly psychedelic music. That comes out of the uh, of the war itself. Um, so it, it comes from the so this is music that comes out of the war itself, and it comes from basically uh, Vietnamese musicians, particularly based out of Saigon, needing to get paid. Right. So 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 you got you got guitarists and you got musicians and singers in South Vietnam in the fifties and sixties 
uh, and there's American GIs all over the place, right? And these GIs need, need a place to go to hang out. Um, so, so who's most ready to accommodate them? Well, it's uh, young musicians who have some training in Western music, who have guitars, uh, particularly electric guitars, who, who, who might be able to get access to a drum kit and be able to put together a rock band, right? And then, so they sit there and they, they, they find the records or maybe the, their soldier friends get them some records and they listen to these, uh, you know, to, to American, um, rock music. And then it just becomes a part of them, right? I mean, you, you play, you play American rock music in a club, you know, night in and night out. And then it starts to become the kind of music that you know how to play. So then they start making their own psychedelic Vietnamese rock music at the time. Um, and, and, and thing put boy is like one of those songs that, um, like, I, who, who's, uh, who's the composer? I, I think, I mean, isn't it, uh, Hong Tito? Like, it's not, he, he's not a rock composer, but like, I, I um, it? okay. So the one we remember. just played was, uh, the CBC band, Great Love. Uh, my Vietnamese is terrible, but it's ting you do it. Uh, I'm not gonna even try, but um, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think the good boy is a song by Huang Pito, who is a very versatile. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna check real quick just so that I'm not like making things up because I got um, Elvis Fung here. Um, do you Tan Mai, Carol Kim? Uh, there's a magical night. Uh, um, Elvis Fung was a big one. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, Elvis, the amazing thing about Elvis Fung at the time is like he looks like Elvis, <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Same hair and hair, huh? So, yeah, like I, his hair was, he had big hair. He, you know, he kind of had his, his, his uh, you know, his collars popped a little bit the same way. Uh-huh. Um, right. But yeah, yeah, so, so, I mean, to, to, to go back and just comment a little bit on, uh, on that music, right? So, so you've got these musicians, uh, trying to make a space for themselves. And, uh, you know, first off, the economic pressures of, of needing to make money in the middle of Saigon, in the middle of the war as a musician means that you either deal with the Vietnamese, uh, the, the Saigon elites, right? The, the, the Saigon upper class. So, so you have all the nightclubs and, and, all, and all that going on at one, at one point. And then you've got the GIs on the other side. So, so these two threads are running kind of in parallel with each other. A lot of the musicians end up you know, working with both groups. Uh, the CBC band um, is kind of beloved uh, by, by, uh, by the Vietnamese uh, overseas community now. Uh, and at the time, I think they were growing in popularity. Um, but they started out, at least in terms of their training, basically by playing for uh, in clubs that where there were a lot of American GIs. It feels like it's like a classic story of a musician's upcoming, right? Like, you gotta yeah. find where the market is, and you've got to, you know, hone a sound that, that the, the market is interested in. Maybe it's like the capitalist-driven understanding of the yeah. music industry, yeah, and the less romantic one, but. But it's also a story of, of kind of cross-cultural integration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the thing that I think uh, anybody who explores your YouTube page is going to be is going to take away almost immediately. You know, when we first talked, I told you the story about how I was sitting in my office and I had your YouTube channel just open and it was playing through each one of your, your songs. And 
and you have some some covers, and then you've got some kind of parodies almost of, of I think there was one of Pokemon in there or something. And I had a student come in, and, and like almost immediately our heads were just, <laughs> we were bouncing to the music uh, in, in a pretty interesting way. So I think like your music, too, has this really great cross-cultural uh, integration quality about it as well both in, in terms of content, but also in terms of sound. Mm-hmm. And for us, we, you know, we asked you to, to cover Tom Petty's Refugee, this, this kind of quintessential song of the 20th century that, that every you know, person in at least the Western you know, English-speaking world can pick up almost immediately. Like listening to your rendition of it, uh, I can still hear Tom Petty belting out the tunes uh, through it also. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you you approached that project of, of translating Tom Petty for us? Yeah. Um, well, first off, I mean, thanks for giving me such a unique and interesting project to do. Um, I, I mean, it's true. One of the things I like to do is to um, mess with expectations of genre. Uh, I yeah. think that as, as an ethnomusicologist, uh, genre theory is one of those things that get taught pretty early on, uh, you know, so uh, I think as part of my training and also as a musician, I've always wanted to play with those, those expectations. Um, and, and your project really gave me that opportunity. And then, and then I had to decide whether or not, you know, I was going to sing it in English or in Vietnamese or you know, whether or not I was going to be the one, or whether or not there was going to be singing at all. Right. So I thought it was really important for the song itself uh, that I, uh, that it be sung. Um, and, and then the question was whether it should be sung in Vietnamese. Um, and, and I, I sat on that for a really long time. Um, and eventually I decided that I wanted to, because it changes the subject position, right? Um, if, if I keep it in English, uh, the subject position, it's hard to imagine it from the perspective of, say, a first-generation Vietnamese American, and that's not the only perspective I was trying to get at. But I think if you change, but like the the possible subject positions that it represents shifts from being, uh, say, English-speaking Americans, uh, maybe second-generation Vietnamese Americans who can who can get it, understand it, grok it, right? Where and then on the other hand. If you put in Vietnamese, then who becomes part of that conversation? Uh, well, then uh, my parents become part of that conversation, right? I don't know if they'll like my music, but I know that they become part of the conversation. They're they're trying to. Uh, I know that they're going to have to interact with it in a different way uh, because yeah. I changed it into Vietnamese, right? And then as I was as, as I was translating it, the words started to mean different things to me, even though. I was more or less translating it word for word, right? Like I, 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 um, I, I wanted to do uh, enough justice to Tom Petty's original, keep the words mostly where they are. There's a kind of, um, there's, there's a conversation going on in that song that's really interesting, right? Um, kind of an observation of this other person that uh, in, in the, in the, and the ambivalence with that person. Uh, presumably, there's someone that you dated or something, but it's hard to know, yeah. right? Uh, just from just from the from the context of the song, and and so shifting it to Vietnamese, like like who, who's who's speaking and who is being spoken to, right? Are, mm. Is it is it someone standing outside the Vietnamese community asking the Vietnamese community to reflect on itself, right? Because uh-huh. that because that becomes 
right? Or is it, or is it someone in the fitness community looking at someone, looking at themselves or looking at their neighbors or whatever? Um, uh, there's, to, to, to me, um, the who is speaking and who is being spoken to changes so significantly in some very meaningful ways. Uh, at least when I hear it in Vietnamese myself, this may not be true of uh, you know of, of other people who hear the song that way. Um, I don't know, like the, the like what is it being in Vietnamese like? How does it uh, resonate with you, or, or does it? It does. It it completely does. I mean, if you if you look at the refugee lyrics, and that might be something you know we can we can sort of pull up and um, take a look at. It just seems with just a subtle difference in the way you say something. It could be a certainly a political song, but there is certainly it's been read as um as a as an intimate struggle between two people. But there is uh, with just switching around or maybe reemphasizing some choruses, there it, it it it's political commentary. thinking so i remember uh when when you first gave me this project i was trying to look at to see if tom penny or the other band members had talked about why they wrote the song and i think i saw one snippet at some point that they were saying that they had written it basically in the midst of like a contract dispute or something with the record label (laughs) right so like so so like I mean, I think they were writing it, they were definitely writing it to a larger audience than their own problems, right? I mean, that, that was part of the kind of genius of, of Tom Petty's writing, is, is that these things that seem very uh, everyday life become you know, bigger questions and, and, and bigger quandaries. But, as, you know, basically, they're dealing with this very specific to, you know, a hotshot in, in the music industry problem, right? You know, like dealing with your record label and, and, and turns it into this, this kind of, struggle against the malaise of, 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 of in my reading it's, it's like a it's a struggle against the malaise of being a, a young person without like a meaning of purpose right yeah mm-hmm. um that the idea of a, of a malaise idea of looking for what it is you're supposed to be doing at this point like what it is your meaning is supposed to be that's what i wanted to flip around and say like i mean that's what the refugee experience ends up being yeah, Americans after you, you know, Vietnamese people after they come to America, right? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, who am I at this point? Like, do I have enough in me to make something of it, right? Um, and so those are the kind of things that end up becoming stronger and stronger in my rendition. 
as I started to translate. So you're saying it, it sounds like that there are these in- interpretive and historical communities um, kind of weave through all this different type of music. Going back to sort of that 50s and 60s rock and roll with Elvis Fung and all that, it's really striking to me that here are these, here's Vietnamese youth in Vietnam, and they're listening to American rock and roll, and they're performing it with all that rock and roll symbolizes to Americans. But they're in the middle of this civil war. Um, it's, it's a fascinating overlay of all these different backdrops because you've got youth, you've got rebellion, you've got, uh, Asia and you've got, you've got Vietnam and you've got America, you've got democracy and you've got socialism and you've, there's so many different connections, aren't there? And now with yeah. this refugee, with Tom Petty and his song, it's again, like what Brian mentioned, these cross-cultural references. Well, and that's what makes the refugee such a powerful metaphor. And I love that idea, this word of, of malaise. And, and maybe it's just because, you know, we're all sheltering at home right now in the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic and, yeah. and talking about refugees and thinking about contract disputes and, and whatnot. But I, I, I really like that, that uh, the music is, is exploring healing of purpose. Uh, you know, like oftentimes refugees and refugee studies are defined by being stateless, uh, quality of statelessness, the pen or rent phrase. Uh, and we often yeah. think about that as, as, you know, not having a nation state to belong to, but maybe it's also the state of purpose. Uh, that sounded really deep, right, guys? <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, uh, maybe let's let's play a little bit of Jason's version. Yeah, we're, we're going to play the full version. I think at the end of this particular show, but uh, let's listen to a little bit of Jason. Absolutely. So here we go. Feel free to take off your headphones and dance around, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Love that Vietnamese. Is that the zit zither? Zither? What is that? So originally, I um, I had the 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 kind of original harmonic line. I had um, played on guitar, or at least I was seeing if it would work out on guitar directly, and. Like I, I felt like it was it was either sounding too much like country music or aping Tom Petty and Heartbreakers too much. So I made the guitar really synthy, but then added traditional music instrument uh, Vietnamese instruments on top of that to to create this kind of weird bricolage, right? So so then you've got a very synthy electronic sounding uh, harmonic background and bass line, and and then on top of that you have basically unaltered uh, traditional instruments playing lines that I I played in ways that kind of straddle the line between playing a kind of playing in, in a key that would make sense for Western music like you know, for, for, for a rock music solo or something like that but also like playing in a way that a traditional uh, musician might play a line like that so that's that's one of the things that uh, that I I won't say struggle with but but, but, that, but that I've been tried to negotiate uh, throughout my kind of work as a traditional musician is that very early on, my teacher uh, would tell me, if you're playing X kind of music, make sure that it sounds like that kind of music. So one of the problems, uh, quote unquote problems of, of, again, of any musicians, say, who, who cross over 
say from Kailung uh, Opera, the, 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 the kind of renovated opera of South Vietnam uh, from about the, uh, and people who, a lot of the pop singers from the 50s were crossover singers either in one direction or another, which is pop and Kailung music, right? And and so there's a tendency for them when they sing pop music to sound kind of like they're singing Kailung, and when they're singing Kailung to like you know, to, to be maybe a little bit too poppy. And, and so so for those artists, I think the idea amongst musicians is that like you shouldn't do that, right? If you want to sing pop music, uh, particularly, I mean, one very simple example. It gets more sophisticated and complicated. But one very particular thing is that most unless you're doing kind of very country sounding um, Vietnamese pop music, then you're supposed to sing in a very strict Northern accent, right? It has to be like a very strict And if you don't, then it sounds like you're like, you know, like a country bumpkin trying to sing pop music. And, and so Kailung singers who are by and large from the country, right? they're from the, from, from, from the Delta, uh, you know, areas of Vietnam. So then, so then they're singing pop songs, a little bit of that Southern accent comes through. And, and that, that's what, at least for me, that's what gives it the quality, the, the mixing uh, of the hybridity. But for a musician who's critiquing them, right, they may say, uh, hey, you know, this person doesn't sound uh, quite right as far as, uh, and, you know, as, as, far as carrying that quality of a Vietnamese uh, nyak pop song. You know, ironically, a lot of those voices become, you know, very, uh, popular and, and, and important later on, right? I mean, crossover into pop music from, like, Gai Lung, uh, she, like, I mean, she's, she's a legend, right? Uh, and, and I would say that part of the reason she becomes a legend is that she's able to bring it, bring that sound of, uh, that kind of slight southern lilt even into, like, the most pop songs that she sings. So it ends up being, you know, it ends up being an important way of signifying parts of Vietnam, right? And, 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 and your kind of Vietnamese authenticity while you're, while you're singing in a, in, in a, um, mode that has pretty strict rules. I mean, I, I say Vietnamese pop, particularly certain songs, uh, particularly the songs that we would call Nhat Kinh Song, uh, or, which is basically like, uh, like the, the concert hall style music, right? The, the music that's influenced heavily by French uh, chanson, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, those songs, you gotta sing a certain way. And if you don't sing them that way, uh, the music music critics are going to come after you. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. I have a I have a different burning question yeah. for you, David. You ready for this? Sure. What yeah. do your parents think about your music? Um, you mentioned this earlier that they would read the music differently than everybody else. So, uh, well, how do they interpret your music? So, my parents. Um, it's it's complicated. So, can you tell my me mom, about your parents and how they yeah. come to? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so my mom comes from a fairly wealthy family in from North Vietnam. Okay, so both sides. Let's start from the beginning. Both sides of my family happen, and they never met each other until they came to America. But both sides happen to be uh, from the north. Uh, my dad's family was from Haizhou. Um, my mom's family uh, lived in, you know, they basically were based out of Hanoi, and and my dad's family was poor. My dad, my mom's family was was rich, uh, but in '54 they went south uh, when uh, you know the when the Geneva Accords were were signed, right? Um, and 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 so they they went south 
and then my dad's family ended up settling uh, kind of in, cent- in kind of south central Vietnam in Quy Nhơn, being that area. And my mom's family ended up settling in Saigon. Um, but my mom's I mean, the ironic thing is when you come from a rich family, even when you're a refugee, <laughs> you end up in a neighborhood with other rich, uh, rich or formerly rich families. And these, right, and so all these, yeah. right? And, and, and so, and so these northerners in Saigon keep this very strong northern accent, right? And these very strong northern, uh, these very strong northern traditions and cultures and things. So my mom's family, uh, has a very Hanoi way of thinking about things. And it's not Hanoi now, obviously, but a 1950, specifically 1954 Hanoi, right? It's very much, in the way my mom's family acts even today. And my dad's family, coming from a poor family, uh, they, they, they end up in a little fishing village, you know, in, in, in Quignon, and, and, and they basically assimilate into the local culture. And my dad, you know, my dad can speak a, a very, you know, he can speak a Haizung accent if he wants to because of his parents, right? But like his normal accent is some kind of weird mix of the of a southern like kind of uh, you know big big accent and and a, and a high zoom accent. So uh so I I I say that to kind of note in the beginning that my parents from where they come from already have different views about what is you know, what correct and incorrect is in terms of cultural mixing, right? Um, and so, and so, my mom, for example, one of the ironic things uh, from, from me growing up is even though uh, I ended up uh, speaking for myself, and I don't really know why I ended up absorbing this, but when I speak, I speak in a pretty strong northern accent. So somehow I picked that from, up from my mom growing up. Um, so. Uh, my my grandparents on my dad's side lived with us, so and they were the ones to teach me how to read and write. Uh, so I also had that kind of Haizung voice in the back of my head all the time. But ironically, my grandparents, because the only music that they could listen to ever since they went south in 1954 was the music of South Vietnam, really loved Gai Lung, right? Mm-hmm. So my grandparents watched Gai Lung videos every day while I was growing up. So I'd be sitting in their room playing, and the Gai Lung would just be running all the time. Gai Lung is a very southern-sounding genre, so you got, you got these two northern grandparents, you know, listening to Gai Lung all day long. So when I when I started to study Vietnamese traditional music, you know, like I'm not I'm not tied at all to northern Vietnamese music originally, right? I, I end up I end up asking my teacher, "Can you teach me Gai Lung?" And and so. But then the, the the funny thing then for my mom is that uh, it's crazy that I would want to listen to Kai Lung that much, right? Or that I would want, that way would be that 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 closely tied to it. Like that's country folks music. That's you know that's that's not the music of of our background. Now the music of the Northern Vietnamese music, I you know I've, I've come to appreciate like uh, particularly upper crust Northern Vietnamese music is is particularly tied to readings of high poetry, um, very sophisticated uh, poetry recitations. And, and I love that music. Uh, but it was something I came to later as a musician rather than like kind of earlier as a, as a child growing up, right? Um, 
and and so for my mom, she's always kind of struggled with with my music in the sense that um, that, that that I have always gone back and forth, even within the Vietnamese canon itself, between genres that she doesn't really uh, uh, you know feel connected to. So, Jason, Gailung um, is uh, the Vietnamese folk opera. Is that right? Yeah, Gailung is a Vietnamese folk opera, but it's even... Let me, Gailung, let me, play, let me play a snippet of it so yeah. our listeners yeah. can... As a as an American teenager, <laughs> you, you you gravitated to this. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, just just to like for people to understand where I'm coming from, like at exactly the same moment in my life, I'm like meeting guys where I'm learning how to freestyle rap with them, right? So, like, uh-huh. so like I, I like this. I mean, this is the same moment in my life of where these things are all happening together. Um, but. Um, yeah, and so, so I, this, I mean, my parent, my grandparents were were listening to this music all the time. Uh, the one important thing to understand about Gailun, and and I would say to understand about Vietnamese traditional music in general, is that we use the traditional music as a shorthand uh, to dis- distinguish between genres and to kind of distinguish what it's trying to signify or index. Right? At least that's, that's what I do. I'm not saying that like this music has been the same since the beginning of time, because I will argue to some extent that traditional music is as modern as any other music. It is in constant production and constant change to produce those feelings of traditionalness. Does that make sense? Right? Yeah. So, so like, so if, if you are trying to produce the feeling of traditionalness, you have to get into people's sense of nostalgia and senses of nostalgia change over time. Right. Yeah. So, so like Gailung starting out is not traditional in the sense that it brings out the sense of nostalgia, uh, it, it was innovative in, in when it first came about because they were trying to bring in, uh, like, uh, if you ever seen Hat Boy, which is uh, mm-hmm. a very traditional opera form. Actually, right? my, that, my, that my, da- uh, my great grandfather yeah. was Dao Tan, and uh, he he was a minor governor and a and a musician, and so there's a theater, the Dao Tan Theater in Vietnam, named after him, and he did Hat Boy. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and, that's awesome. And again, I'm like, I love Hat Boy, but Hat Boy, like, if you've ever seen Peking Opera, that's the closest to Hat Boy, right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And like, very, very formalized, very kind of distant because you're telling these stories, you got these masks on, mm-hmm. these masks all mean something. Um, and, and Gailung is, is a kind of response to the distance of Hat Boy. So they, they, they take some things from, French, uh, from French theater, like the costuming, the melodrama, right? And they, they add more dialogue. These are all things that are coming from the fact that Vietnamese people are going back and forth to Paris, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so they get, so they have these ideas about renovating. Like, and the word guy in, in Gailung means to renovate, to change, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's in response to innovating upon Hat Boy and, and the other genres at the time. So, so Gailung at for, at the moment of its inception, was viewed as innovation, right? was viewed as an experiment in a new form of, of, of uh, Vietnamese musical theater. 
fast forward to now, Kailung is definitely nostalgia and definitely tradition, right? Which is which is interesting to think about in terms of the way we understand tradition and the way it moves. Um, like uh, the danbo itself today uh, is an instrument that is played primarily with guitar pickups inside of it. Mm-hmm. Even if you're playing traditional music, right? And, and, and that happens because the danbo originally was too quiet to be played in an ensemble. So the moment some Vietnamese people would figure out a way to hack some guitar pickups mm, into the thing, cool. they were on top of it. Right? So, so like, so the, the you know, like, in, in Gailun music, for example, the, the original primary instrument uh, of the Gailun opera was Sanfim, uh, which is the, the two string moon lute, the, the same one that I play as uh, the secondary instrument in, in my version of a refugee. And that instrument uh, is sometimes referred to as Gwenbilgum, the, the gentleman lute, right? And, and it's supposed to be the instrument that holds orchestra to the, the, the Gailun orchestra together or the traditional music orchestra together. What ends up taking over in Gailun, like basically by the late 60s, maybe even earlier, is guitars. A gu- mm. Guitars with the, with the frets carved out so that you could push down on, on the fret and bend the pitch. Those become more popular uh, than the moon loop as the primary instrument to play Gailun music. Uh, so these innovations are happening all the time. The sound of tradition. I mean, like these days, if you if you want to produce the sound of Gailun that will tear at people's heartstrings, you better have an electric guitar. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like that. That's the sound. That's the sound people are looking for. They're not necessarily looking for like Danjang and stuff. So like, I, I think tradition is a moving uh, moving target. And I think we uh, oftentimes when we we think about in, in the in the analysis, tradition oftentimes is a modern invention to reach back to our, to signify the past, right? It's not actually like, like our, like our museum artifact of the past that we have. And it's the same, exactly the same. It's like our version of what we, uh, uh, of the past that, that pulls at our heartstrings. Mm. Which, you know, affects the way that we're interpreting this music, but it also speaks volumes, I think, to, to refugee communities as they migrate around the world, um, that they're having to constantly manufacture pay homage to this sense of tradition, right? Um, it's right. Probably the okay. thing that, it's probably the thing that drew you to the instruments uh, in the first place when you were just a youngster. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, definitely I can say that the reason I play Danbo now is very different than the reason that I came to the Danbo. And, mm-hmm. and when I came to the Danbo, it was definitely a more nostalgic sensibility about what the Danbo meant. Um, I remember, so I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, um, ethnomusicologist. Uh, he passed away, well, it's been longer than uh, I would say, it's, what, nearly a decade now? But Jen Van K, ethnomusicologist, uh, lives in Paris. Uh, but basically, the, the premier ethnomusicologist of uh, Vietnamese traditional music. And I had the opportunity to meet him in Paris a few years before he passed away. Um, and I remember uh, being there. I just started playing Danbo for, I would guess at that point, probably three or four years. And I was in his apartment, and on my way out, we, we had had this conversation, and we were just kind of making small talk and talking about music in general. On my way out, he like you know, he uh, puts his hands on my cheeks and, and says, 
uh, it's, this is the important work that you're doing. Uh, it's important for you to preserve our traditional music, right? Yeah. Um, and and at the time, I, I can't. I mean, I I can't describe to you like how long that stuck with me as like this this kind of motivating force in my life. Like I, I got to preserve this music. Um, and and then when I, when I uh, a lot of those preconceived notions uh, be, got torn down as I studied ethnomusicology, I started to, read, to, I started to, think, to, to think of these things as, constru- as social constructions, right? Sure. That's not to but say that these social constructions are important. Yeah. yeah. But it's not to say that they're important, right? I, I mean, they were motivating factors in my life to become an ethnomusicologist, right? So so I can't say that they're not important. They're not things just because this, I forget who said this, but I, but it's it to me, like just because something is a social construction doesn't make it not real, right? Oftentimes people say things are social constructions as if like they just, no, that means like they're ephemeral. No, they make real effects on the world. They make real effects in people's lives. Um, and, and that was true for me. So as much as I can sit here and say, yeah, like the, the, the sensibilities about the dembo as a traditional instrument are bogus and that it's a very innovative instrument and whatever. Like, I mean, people believe what they believe and those, yeah. those beliefs are strong. Uh, so, uh, I, I always try to couch when you're, what I'm trying to say about tradition because it, because what is traditional matters a lot to people and, and, and yeah. it's not my place to like, to, to, to tear it down, uh, too much. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I, I think V and I both agree that what you're doing is, is important work, uh, not only for ethnomusicology, but for lots of different fields like refugee studies. Uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time, though, Jason. So uh, from V and I, we just want to say was, thank yeah. you so much. So for much. Down yeah, and that was fantastic. your expertise with us. Really, and uh, we're really looking forward to uh, your your future work, and um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how um, Vietnamese Americans who say aren't as embedded in their you know like they they grew up in a household of refugee stories, but they don't have the same yeah. sort of uh, exposure or maybe interest. So I think um, you know in any follow up conversations with ha- we have with you, it'd be great to. See See and talk about what um, second generation young Vietnamese people, when they listen to this, what they, if it changes their mind about traditional Vietnamese music, whether it's a it's a new entry point for um, yeah. for their heritage. Very cool. Very cool. So let's. Uh, oh, thank you. Play. Thank you. That's awesome. So we're going to play you out uh, with uh, with your song and, you know, take a minute or two and and uh, uh, react, uh, if you will, to some parts of it, because um, it's just so incredibly fantastic. Well, thank you. I think dango guitar solos are probably one of my favorite things to do these days. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. So I, I did a couple of those throughout the song because uh, it's um it's uh, I played this I played your rendition your version for my students and it was it was like a, it was the dango solos that they loved the most. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thank you.